The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So uh, we've been talking about truth as a particular angle on our meditation practice. And lately, the last week or so, we've also been talking about speech, not just in terms of meditation practice, but as a practice in the world. How to use truthful speech or how to understand truth, not just in terms of seeing directly the experience in the moment. That's a kind of truthfulness but also in terms of how we express ourselves, what we say and what we don't say. So I want to continue that conversation for at least one more week, using truth as a way to think about and to imagine our whole spiritual path. And uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago how so much of the path is a kind of self-honesty, being truthful to ourselves about what we're feeling, what we're seeing, what we're experiencing. And just to get aware, to be more aware of how much denial we have about what we're feeling. You know, like we may be with our partner or with a friend and feeling irritated, but, you know, not that it's appropriate even to say it to the other person, hey, I'm irritated, but a lot of the times we're not even willing to acknowledge to ourselves that I'm irritated, that I'm upset, that I want to be home in bed. So, you know, first and foremost, we have to have this compass and we want this alignment like, okay, I don't care how it is, I want to know how it is. And it doesn't matter how it is, but there's this intention to want to be in alignment, to be connected. And this is at the very heart of practice. And what really supports this commitment to being in alignment and acting out of that experience of being in alignment, like speaking out of that place, responding from that place, what really helps is this inner barometer. When we're disconnected, when we're out of alignment, there's some kind of deceit going on. It may not be even intentional, but when we're not in alignment, not connecting with how it is, that means something is operating in the mind that's distorting the mind, disturbing the mind, causing the mind to be disconnected. And that is something that we can feel. We can actually notice the experience of disconnection or deceit even. I'm using, I mean, deceit's a more provocative word, but you know how it is. Like we could be zooming through some day and really like in denial about what's going on. And we're using sort of the froth, whatever that it is that's getting us excited. We're kind of using that, you know, specific fixation to kind of keep the froth going in order to avoid some other aspect of what's going on that we don't want to be aware of, don't want to be connected to. And then the other piece of the barometer is when you know, even if we're not, even if what's going on in our heart, in our mind, body, emotionally, even when that's not so pleasant, there is a certain pleasantness about being connected or 
you, I think the better way to say that there's something pleasant about not needing to be in denial, not needing to create waves of distortion, you know, not needing to create froth in our life. There's something beautiful and pleasant about this grounded, connected, non-dramatic, non-idealistic way of being in any given moment. It's like if we have a really idealistic relationship, like when we fall in love and the person appears to be perfect. Um, you know, we can notice there's a certain tension in that idealism. And then later, maybe, when things are more grounded and we realize he or she is just a human being, an imperfect human being, a lot like ourselves, then it may not be as pleasant than being with this imagined saint, being with this, you know, ordinary human being. But there's something, there's a release involved in not being idealistic. Not just about our intimate relationships, but idealistic about ourselves, idealistic about our life situations, about anything, about Buddhism, about meditation practice. So we can create froth or different ways of disconnecting about anything. So I think last week I started talking more specifically about speech and, and how speech can reflect our disconnection or speech, our speech in the world can reflect a, a kind of truthfulness or integrity or connection, non-denial, non-idealism. And I mentioned, you know, last week the Buddha had different ways of talking about right speech or wise speech, but one way is, you know, the resolve to uh, speak out of or uh, speak from the intention to be truthful as opposed to color the truth or speak lies or the intention to speak in ways that support concord, that bring people together, that see common ground as opposed to words that are divisive, that are designed to divide people or whatever into groups, you know, the good and the bad. And speech that is gentle versus speech that's harsh and heavy and kind of used as a weapon or used to um, create a disturbance. You know, we do this even in you know, not terribly unskillful ways, but just the tone of our voice or just the subtle quality of sarcasm. We're, we're kind of using our words and the tone of our words. We're using it to um, shake things up or just like a power trip in a way. And then he, the last thing, the last of these four places for training is around the intention, like, are, do our words, do they have meaning? Are they useful? Or is it just some kind of idle chat to fill up space, like we're afraid of empty space? So that's, these four trainings can be very useful. And you see how they really are just invitations to look at the underlying, underlying intentions in the mind. You know, the intention to speak the truth, to be straightforward and direct, or the intention to color things or to shade things or to leave aspects of the truth out. 
the intention to deceive, I'm sorry, to divide, or the intention to help people feel connected, the intention to create an impact, harsh words, or the intention to calm and to be gentle and to sort of make our words palatable so they're actually, the person can actually understand. Or the words that will kind of use to sort of fill up space to help support disconnection or words that are really there to ground ourselves and others in reality in the way it is. And one way that Sylvia Burstein, a wonderful teacher from Spirit Rock in Northern California, Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and a wonderful author as well, in one of her books she has a chapter, um, Advanced Right Speech Exercises. Is what I'm about to say an improvement over maintaining silence? And it's such a wonderful reflection just to have in our lives. Like, uh, you know, how many conversations would that be an appropriate reflection? Is this conversation an improvement on silence? Especially with our, our good friends and partners. Because, uh, you know, for with those people at least, most of us, most of these relationships, there's some permission for silence. Like it's okay not to have to, you know, for newer friends and less developed relationships. You know, it's not, it's, we're a little awkward when it's silent. But with good friends, it's okay. So that criteria is really useful. Is this conversation an improvement on silence? And then we can sort of expand that group of people where silence is really appropriate. Like one of the things we do at the Monday night Buddhist studies class is we have small groups every other week where people sit down in groups of three and they talk about a particular theme that we're working on or studying. And somebody might run out of whatever they have to share. And there will be a moment of silence in the group. And we really build that in like it's okay to just have some silence. And then to speak again when you have something more to say. But not to feel like you have to speak because it's still your turn. You know, the point is to speak when you have something to say and then to be happy being quiet when you don't have anything to say. It takes a lot of uh, composure and fearlessness, I think, to be able to sort of just shut up when we don't have anything important or meaningful to say. And to be really okay about that, like not to, even though culturally it might be a little strange or awkward, but we can have enough confidence to overcome that, actually to make everybody in that space feel okay with the silence too, just by our own confidence and comfort with silence. I mean, that's one of the things our, our, one of the things that meditation practice does for us over time is we learn how to be in silence. And I really recommend to people not to be dependent just on formal sitting in order to be quiet, but to have times when you go home and you're not meditating formally, but you're not turning the radio on and you're not on the phone and you're not talking and you're not reading. You know, like to cultivate the experience of hanging out in empty space. 
and you're not even thinking that that you're not not thinking either. So you you know it, you need to give we need to give this a word like non-meditation. One teacher calls this non-distracted non-meditation. So you're not spacing out in thought, but you're not really trying to meditate either. You're just sort of appreciating space. And now in that space, thoughts might come and go, but you're not being the person thinking those thoughts. You're not trying to think thoughts. You're not even trying to do nothing. You're just letting things happen. You know, so you might sit on the couch, and then you might walk over here and look out the window, you know, and then you might put the dishes away. But what you're really do- doing is just noticing the empty space moment by moment. And it really helps to see the doer, you know, that habit of doing, I got to do this, I should be doing that. To see that as an impersonal entity in the mind. You know, this really gets at this fourth category about idle speech. Because it's not just idle speech, it's also idle action. It's just action for the sake of action, doing for the sake of doing, thinking for the sake of thinking. It's really based on a kind of neurotic fear of non-doing. So we need to cultivate the non-doing so that when we do things, we're not doing it because we're fearful of not doing. We're doing something because it needs to be done. It's useful. It's helpful. In this chapter, uh, Sylvia uh, Burstein talks about uh, four levels of practice. And the first practice she talks about is just a different way of kind of getting at the same instruction, you know, to really look at intentions behind speech or our commitment to truth. So one way to sort of illuminate our speech is to make the resolve in the mind. She calls this sort of entry-level right speech practice. And to, to make the resolve in our minds that we're not going to speak in a way that adds pain. And again, this is an exercise to better illuminate our mind to ourselves. You know, it's like supporting the mind, seeing the mind. So we make the resolve, and then it like creates a little alarm clock. So when we're using our words in a way that's creating pain for ourselves or for others, we kind of wake up, oh, I had made this resolve not to do this. And then in that moment, because we're waking up, we can see what the intention is in the mind. Why am I saying this? Um, You know, does this need to be said? What's going on here? What What do I think will be accomplished by these words? Because a lot of the time, what we discover, I I think I've certainly discovered this, that we uh, speak in ways that cause pain because we're in pain. It's like a really inefficient way of dealing with pain. When we're in a lot of pain, well, we'll sort of act it out in, in, in a way that causes other people, it causes ourselves to be more in pain, but causes other people to be in pain. And one dramatic example of that um, happened on a retreat. And it's such a classic example, especially for longer retreats, where eventually difficult experience just comes up. This is true, of course, in life. It 
retreat practice, like a, in this case a three-month retreat, where you're in silence, you're basically just sitting and walking and eating and using the toilet, and that's about it, doing a little cleaning for an hour every day or 45 minutes every day, and that's about it. And in that refined atmosphere, it's like a creates a vacuum, and all of the unfinished pain, unresolved pain and confusion and other unfinished stuff, it just tends to slowly or fast come up to the surface. And when it is, when it does come up to the surface, it's like we don't know what to do with all that energy, all that unpleasant energy. So we tend to act out our the unpleasantness, the irritation of it, the impatience with it, the confusion and doubt that arises because of it. We tend to act it out. At first, just in our mind. So we're sitting on retreat, and we might look calm, but our mind is like wild, like a wild beast, screaming at ourselves or screaming at the teacher or screaming at life, screaming at the person sitting next to us, judging this, judging that, a lot of self-hatred, all kinds of ways of acting out. And we try to be steady you know, with it and to see it as just phenomena, just stuff being known. But sometimes it leaks out. And one relatively dramatic example of that is uh, there's a beautiful pond uh, not too far from the uh, Insight Meditation Center. It's part of their property. And one of those classic uh, New England ponds. And these three-month retreats were in the fall. And so this particular retreat, the pond was beautiful, surrounded by these wonderful birch trees. And, um, and then like the next tier of trees were the maple trees. And it was gorgeous. And weather was nice for a period of time. And uh, during this uh, previous summer, some beavers had moved up into the pond area. I guess they hadn't been there before. I didn't remember them being there before. And so during the retreat, you know, week after week after week, the beavers do did what beavers do, you know, cutting down the birch trees one after another. And there are lots of birch trees, but there were several beavers. I don't know how many, but you know, more than more than two, maybe maybe even three or four or five. I don't know, but definitely more than two. And uh, they were just decimating slowly this idyllic New England pond in the fall. And uh, so somebody on retreat, I don't know who, there's like 120 people on retreat, was like a lot of us that would do a lap around the pond every day, or they had some nice benches, and people would go out there and do a couple of their sitting periods out by the pond. And somebody was probably doing that regularly and noticing the decimation, you know, just the, this beautiful thing being turned into a mess. And, uh, you know, when we're really sensitive, it's like we imagine, you know, we're feeling the pain of the trees and, and whatever else. And so one day on the bulletin board, which is really is the only entertainment in the whole retreat, <laughs> is to read the daily announcements. And, you know, they have very strict rules about, you know, you're not supposed to write email or uh, uh, notes to other people on retreat, just like if you have something to communicate with a staff person or one of the teachers, or if the teacher needs to communicate with a, somebody on retreat, they'd leave a little note. But one day, somebody wrote a note. And usually, when you do leave a note, you'd fold it in half. You just have the person's name there. You wouldn't like have the note there for everybody to see. And the person wrote a big note, and it said, 
the beavers have gone berserk. <laughs> and But in that note, you know, it was very clear somebody was in a lot of pain. They didn't know what to do with it. And, and the pain they were feeling internally, they were looking for something to blame that pain on. And, you know, so the beavers were convenient, you know. <laughs> I'm feeling this upset because the beavers are decimating the pond. And I have a reason to act it out, you know. People don't realize what's going on. And of course, the staff people very quickly took the sign down, but not before some of us saw it. <laughs> and, it and of course, it's disturbing. It disturbs us. I mean, either it disturbs us because we judge the person, like, what the hell is that person doing? <laughs> Putting a sign. Don't they realize we're on a meditation retreat and we're supposed to just deal with the stuff that's coming up? You know, or, you know, we get upset by sort of wanting to take care of the person and sort of being the, the parent and sort of imagining, oh, it must be the person next to me. You know, she or he seems so fragile. I want, maybe I'll leave them a note on their cushion or I'll walk three miles to town where there's a little superette and I'll buy a chocolate bar and I'll leave it. I wonder what door they... I'll sit up all night and watch what room they come out of and it can become this whole obsessive trip trying to take care. And this is how we spread pain. Even... We think we're actually helping, but because what we're really acting out is our own uh, uh, weariness or um, exhaustion, being with our own stuff. You know, pain, being with discomfort is exhausting. The mind gets withered and it's looking for an escape. So much of our seemingly wholesome activity is just different ways of avoiding our own suffering, our own discomfort in life. I mean, it's, it's a little bit uh, provocative to say that. You know, I, I'm not dismissing our capacity for really kind and wise action in life. But the truth is we haven't carefully looked at what we, what we take to be kind and wise action. And a lot of it is distorted by our own need to do, our own aversion to stillness, to silence. There was a, a story that Chinzen Young, a friend of Chinzen Young, one of the early teachers that we brought in in the late 80s and early 90s, um, the Twin Cities Vipassana Cooperative, a sister organization to Common Ground, would bring Chinzen in for retreats. And he told the story of a one of his friends who I think had at one point ordained as a Buddhist monk. And I'm not sure if at this time he was, but he had this practice, you know, this way of life. His approach to life was sit still until somebody asks me to do something and then do it and then go sit still again. You know, that, I mean, as much as possible, he wanted to live that way to see if it would work, to sort of be, but not be attached to being still, not be attached to being the meditator, but being willing to, not, not even necessarily to formally sit, but to be quiet. But then when something arose, as if life were asking him to get involved, to just be willing to flow that way, to let his life flow in that direction, to respond to whatever. So when the partner says, honey, the garbage needs emptying, you know, you just go empty it, you know, or somebody needs to connect, you would connect. But then it's like the system could go to neutral, to quiet. 
And this is actually how we can begin to tease out how we cause pain. We have to be really comfortable with silence in order to tease out the ways that we cause harm. Because there's so many subtle ways to cause harm. We can't even fathom the ripples that, you know, when we say something, how many ripples there are. <laughs> this is a kind of a quirky, funny story, but it made an impact in my life. In third grade, Sister Cecilia, she, she was probably in her 80s, I'm not kidding, and very strict. And this was a time when a lot of the nuns at the school I was at were changing their habits and were becoming, this is in the mid-60s probably, and uh, they were kind of sort of loosening up, but not Sister Cecilia. So I was like that. I was just, you know, kind of restless and not so comfortable just being in my skin. And she had given the assignment for the night. And in hindsight, I, I, I recognized what had happened, but not necessarily in the moment. But anyway, I asked her to repeat herself. And I didn't really need her to repeat herself. And somehow, she was a very sharp woman. She knew that I was just kind of like restless. <laughs> and she decided to make an example out of me. <laughs> and she, she would do this thing where she'd make you stand up, and she'd hit you <laughs> under your chin like that. You know, and it hurts, and especially if your tongue's in the way. <laughs> and I, I think I, I'm pretty sure I cried then in front of the in front of the class. But it, it's just an example of how, you know, that little relatively innocent, you know, kind of restless neurotic activity pushed her button, you know, and and then you know pushed my button, <laughs> you know, and who and then maybe she felt guilty about what she did to me. Who knows? And now that would have been pushing her button, and on and on. And we get a lot of suffering, even from really little leaks. Not, not sort of big, sort of hateful leaks, but just little leaks. When the mind isn't comfortable being neutral. So it's a really powerful practice that we can take up, uh, not adding pain. And then Sylvia goes on to talk about, you know, sort of even more involved levels of, of wise speech or commitment to truth, like around gossip. This is the second level. So really getting clear about the intention when we're talking about somebody else. What is the intention? Why am I saying this about this person? Would I be willing to say this directly to the person? If not, why not? If so, if I am willing to say this person, well, why aren't I saying this to this person? Why am I just telling this other person about this person? So this can be a very powerful practice to, uh, yeah, just to be more truthful about our intentions when we're talking about other people. And then when we're truthful about this, then uh, it leads to like getting to see all of the intentions for all of the words that we speak. So not just when we're talking about other people. And I'll just read something. This is what Sylvia says. So she calls this very high level speech. Requires awareness of intention in all communication, not just gossip. I began tidying up my own speech after a period of silent retreat practice. 
right? Because after not speaking for you know a long time, a month or two months, depending on how long the retreat is, then you're you're in a sense hyper aware because now speech isn't just automatic pilot. Now when because you haven't been speaking, you're much more conscious when you're about to speak. You can see the intentions. When I returned home, it was several days before my speech returned to a custom reflexive speech. I was able to notice that in the interim, between answers arising in my mind and emerging from my mouth, I had enough time to become aware of my motivation. My motivation turned out to be pretty good, but not as good as I had imagined. Maybe 80% of, of my answers were in fact, were fact disclosure. 10% of the time I was motivated by pleasure over the clever way I was going to say them. And 10% of the time I was trying to bias the listener's understanding. Now this should be very familiar with us. I mean, how many times did we imagine we were telling the truth, but really what we were doing is trying to win some argument? And the other person might have been completely oblivious to the argument we were trying to win. But somehow we were selling something, some idea of who we think we are, or some idea that corresponds with our opinion about something. And then she goes on, <clears throat> and she says, um, and 10% of the time I was trying to bias the listener's understanding. Sometimes it was even worse. Sometimes the final 10% was a covert dig, an underhanded way to get even for some real or imagined slight. Initially, I was dismayed to find I was using my gift for verbal nuance as a way of being secretly unkind. But I felt better as soon as I decided not to do it anymore. High-level right speech turns out not to be very difficult once the mind is programmed to scan for hidden messages. It does it automatically. Making the change has simplified my life since I have much less cleaning up to do afterward. And this is the thing. There's such a ease that begins to be more obvious in our lives when we're just not digging so many holes by acting out, you know, using speech in a way that causes pain, uses speech as gossip. I mean, so many things get set in motion that take so long to fix if we can ever fix them. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Like, I bet everybody in the room can think of a time right now in the past where words were exchanged and they still hurt. That experience, the pain of that experience is still alive in us. So we all know this. We know the power of words to cause pain. And I want to just mention Sylvia's last, you know, the most advanced level, <clears throat> just as a guideline for ourselves, you know, as we bring awareness to speech. She calls this truthfulness to the nth degree. And I really like this. Um, and she, she gives an example of being at some conference and having a conversation with somebody she just met, some intelligent person who had many of the same interests she had. And he'd ask her some questions. And Sylvia, you know, who's very quick-minded, you know, she'd just rattle off her answers. And then she'd ask him some question, you know, at lunch or whatever. And then she notices sort of, for her, at first, a strange pause, like there was some silence. And at first she, she thought, oh, you know, 
maybe maybe I asked in an inappropriate way, or maybe he doesn't like me. You know, just sort of that tendency we have when there's silence to kind of assume the worst. But then he'd answer. And after getting to know the guy during the week-long conference or whatever it was, she finally realized that he was actually pausing and not just giving his answer that he had you know, the last time somebody asked him that question, but basically allowing the answer or the response to her question to arise fresh in the moment. And this is such a powerful practice, you know, speech that, in a sense, arises out of the void. Um, in the Thai forest tradition, when the monks or nuns would give a Dharma talk, you know, they wouldn't prepare, they wouldn't have notes. The idea is you would have to just speak from the moment, you know, kind of tune in to the moment. And wherever you began, you know, you just there in the moment, aware, of course, of what you're saying, and letting the talk unfold as a natural unfolding, not a prepackaged or pre-planned unfolding. And I've noticed just in my own preparation for talks, you know, that it's really changed from in the beginning where I would literally write out the whole talk and be very much tied to my notes to sort of the middle stage where I pretty much write out my whole talk but wouldn't be so tied to my notes. So my talk would might or might not follow how my notes to now when I prepare, I don't I don't really write down I might you know, I, I do have notes here, but I don't uh, write down what I'm gonna say necessarily. And but I'm I'm just sort of doing study. You know, I'm just trying to authentically reflect on the ideas that I might talk about. And then, you know, when I'm here they're they're sort of more well greased, the more near the surface maybe. But it, it can be more of an authentic, like a uh, human being, aware and present of their life as it is, and then speaking out of that. And we can do this more and more. This is like wise speech to the nth degree. Where And it's, it's scary for us to enter or to drop into that don't know mind. You know, when we hear somebody ask, to really let the mind go blank. It's like, you know, the computer shuts down, you know, we reboot the computer. There's a kind of, we don't know what's going to arise in the next moment. You know, will it be fixed or will it... And just to let the mind go quiet. And then it's like taking rebirth. The mind takes rebirth as a fresh response in that moment. Because we're really dependent on the known, you know, our fixed notions of things. Even like who we take people to be or even situations, you know, common ground is this. But that idea that we have about common ground or about ourselves or about our close friends, that idea never, never matches the actual experience. The definitions we have of things never even approximate the reality. It's like, I, you know, the example that's used often is the difference between the menu at a restaurant and eating the food. The ideas we have about somebody or about something or opinions, they're not really the situation itself. So even when we talk about something political like healthcare in America, 
you know, we, we don't want our response to be based on like, okay, we've got to figure it out. This is what the country should do. We really want our response to come from this human experience of not knowing and this human experience of caring about people, all people, people who are afraid of too much government. I really let our response come from that awareness. And our response come from the awareness of people who have medical conditions and no coverage. And all the people who are afraid of losing their coverage. So when we allow our response to any conversation or any interaction to come out of the void, it's much more likely to be inclusive instead of exclusive. Because that's what the void does. It breaks down barriers. When we go to that moment of stillness or quiet or don't know, it's like when we're in that empty space, there aren't any boundaries of like, this is good and that's bad, or this is the right idea, this is the wrong idea. Because that moment of stillness or emptiness, that all gets abandoned for a moment. And then we get to put back together, you know, because we're going to respond. We're a human being. We have relationships. We're going to say something, probably. But now it gets to be rebuilt in that moment. And then if, as we're rebuilding it, we start seeing, you know, unwholesome motivations, like we're trying to bias the person or we're trying to manipulate the situation, we'll see it. It will be obvious. But our prepackaged idea, if we just use a prepackaged idea, we won't necessarily notice all the motivations, all the intentions, however unhealthy they might be, that were behind that prepackaged idea. We just say it because that's what we said before. This is what Mark thinks, so I'll say it. You know, but, that, but we miss so much. If we put it together, if we let it arise, we learn so much about the mind and about how to be skillful, how to be authentic in the moment. So we have about 15 or 20 minutes now. It'd be nice to hear from people. I'm sure people have learned quite a bit, both by making mistakes and successes in terms of speech in the world, what seems to have worked for you, what you're learning, and of course, any questions you might have about the talk tonight. Sure, please say your name. My name is Dan. I'm visiting from Alex Oh, welcome. Thank you. Um, so if you are trying to speak, um, in, in a way that is open. And with people you know, you have some really kind of values. And, and if a group of those people are, are, are not, they're not trying to do this because they, they, it's not part of what they're doing in their life, uh, do you think, is there a value some time or is it legitimate to maybe use writing in a way to communicate with them? So that, like, Maybe they can never even hear a whole sentence before they're you know, saying they're mm -hmm. Well, basically, anything goes, you know. And especially if we're doing that nth level right speech where we're allowing the response to come out of the void, we might find ourselves being very creative on how we're going to respond to the situation. It may be that we leave the situation, like we don't interact with them. Maybe. We write a note, you know, maybe, I mean, basically, whatever might work and whatever, as it's arising as a response, we're seeing that the intentions behind it are wholesome. We're not trying to be harsh. We're not trying to be divisive. We're not trying to speak an untruth. We're not just trying to fill up space. 
We're trying to be useful and truthful and kind in the moment. And sometimes that means being silent, like walking away. And sometimes it means being creative in how we respond. And sometimes the appropriate thing is to play along until we can gracefully remove ourselves. So I think we wanna, we don't want to define what right speech looks like, because it probably can look like anything, including using a loud voice sometimes. I was a school teacher for a while uh, in the 80s and early 90s, and in different, you know, different ways working in the schools. And uh, I had to use a loud voice sometimes. And early on, when I used my loud voice, it wasn't wholesome at all. But toward the end, there were a few times when I used a loud voice, an angry voice, but it, was, it felt really clean. It felt like it was, it was the appropriate response to the moment. And in hindsight, didn't feel like there was anything left over, any trace of unskillfulness. And it, like, it was just the right kind of energy in that moment. But it was a very specific situation. You know, and just a few times, you know, most of the time, it didn't feel per perfectly clean, you know, but a few times. So I think there are moments when a loud voice is appropriate, you know, like the proverbial example when your kid's about to run into a busy street. Thanks, Sandy, for a question. Yeah. When you were talking about the, what was it, non-meditation, non Non-distracted, non-meditation. You were talking about not trying, not trying to meditate, or but not trying not to think. And and I realized I felt confused about. Like I feel like often when I'm sitting in here, I'm actively pushing thought away. You know, and I'll, I'll say thinking, but but I feel like there's a wrestling that's going on in mm -hmm. me, and then. And then I realized I didn't know the difference between that, well, is that meditation? Is that something else? And then what was this non-distracted, non-meditation? Mm -hmm. could make sense of what yeah. those differences were. Well, that's a good question to clarify all the time. The way I often teach meditation practice is <clears throat> the sort of two distinct stages in a given sit. And I would always have both of these stages in. You could think of the th a third stage, which is setting your intention at the beginning. So you settle down, you set your intention, like, what am I doing? And then the first part, and this might be the great majority of your set, just depends on where you're at and what's right for that day. The great majority, though, generally is a particular training that might have moments where it is a little bit like wrestling with the mind. I mean, you want to be doing it in a loving way, but if you have a rambunctious child that can get itself into trouble, the parent might need to be forceful with it. Now, when the child isn't rambunctious, isn't going to do something dangerous, the parent doesn't need to be overvigilant then. The parent can just be sitting down and observing the child from some distance, you know? And when the child's sound asleep, it's probably appropriate for the parent to really drop out of the picture completely. So that first part of practice is keeping the mind from doing unskillful things. Because when we have a continuity, meaning several moments in a, in a, role, in, in a role where the mind isn't disturbing itself, then something starts to transform in the mind from a distracted, dispersed, unpleasant mind to
to a unified, pleasant mind. This is an inner happiness or inner bliss that arises when concentration develops. And it all has to do with this particular training where, in technical terms, we're abandoning the hindrances. We're teasing out greed and aversion, dullness, restlessness, and doubt from the mind. And that's the definition of samadhi, when those five disturbing elements aren't there. But I always recommend, and sometimes this second piece can be most of your practice when it's appropriate, where we, we're basically doing the non-distracted non-meditation. So we're just practicing being clear or open or undefended. And <clears throat> thoughts will come and go, emotions come and go, maybe the mood shifts, certainly sensations are coming and going, sounds are coming and going. But the mind is just remaining clear, like a mirror, simply knowing it's like this. And we're really trying to realize an effortlessness in the mindfulness. In this first stage, there's a, a real sense of personal effort and vigilance in the practice. In the second stage, the vigilance is very refined and specific to being open and trusting that everything on its own will come and go. I don't need to control. So if a particularly despicable thought arises in the mind, we don't need to con congeal around the self that doesn't want that despicable thought. Instead, we rest in wisdom knowing that that thought will arise and it will cease. We don't need to be the person that stands up to get rid of it. So there's an important shift. So even if you're doing most of your practice in that, like uh, coming back to the breath in order, you know, using the breath as an anchor to help unify the mind, and in that uni relative unification to notice when the disturbing elements arise, to see them as just what they are, and then to come back and to see the next disturbance and come back and to basically not take the bait. Because the five hindrances are like little worms. And we like worms. You know? <laughs> and so we don't want to take the bait. Like when we're feeling dull we, or sleepy, we don't want to take it personally. When we're feeling restless, we don't want to take it personally. When we're feeling greedy, we don't want to take it personally. And that training is really essential. But we don't want to limit our practice to just that training. We want to experiment with this other piece. And then the more we understand that, when we can do this other kind of practice, this is how we should practice. But it's very easy to think we're doing this other practice and we're just spaced out, wasting time, basically. So when we can't just be open and let things come and go, we should be training the mind, looking for what's disturbing, finding skillful ways to unhook from what's disturbing, to not identify with it, not be attached to it and to learn how to be neutral so we can practice in this way. And it is confusing, so I'm glad you asked. Other thoughts? Yeah, Julian. A um, couple of things. One is I, I think the Buddha made a list for the monks about topics to talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, and they were all Dharma-related. I mean, as lay practitioners, most of what we talk about doesn't make that list. Um, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, sex, religion, politics, any kind of divisive things. But I've reflected a lot on how you've talked about how interrupting others in conversations a form of violence. And I find that painful in my life because, you know, I interrupt people all the time. Um, 
that's pretty, you know, a lot of us do. Um, what I've been trying to do is just look at the feeling tone when people are kind of going on and on, just as a form of meditation. So the tone of voice and things like that. But what other skillful means can you recommend when you just want to jump in and just mm -hmm. kind of stop them? Or, you know, looking at, I guess, looking at one's motivation is important. But what, what else can you recommend when that restlessness there is, is there, that impulse is there to yeah. jump in? Well, I think this nth degree practice is, is, can be really useful, but it's really hard. Because I generally we find when, when you're in a conversation that feels deadening or whatever reason doesn't you want it to stop or you want you want to be heard or something like that. You know, the problem that keeps us from responding skillfully in that moment is we have preconceived ideas. Like for example, the preconceived idea that this person should be interested in what I have to say. Or the preconceived idea that I was born to teach this person a lesson, you know, about how they go on and on. But coming out of the void means we're really comfortable speaking up and we're really comfortable being silent. So what we're about to do next in this experience of being with somebody who's going on and on has nothing to do with our discomfort. So it's going to arise out of being skillful or being uh, helpful. No, we may not be helpful. What we are about to say may actually really hurt the person. But maybe in the end it will be good for them. We don't know. But all we know is we've teased out our own um, discomfort. So we don't want to make peace with, we don't want to be that like cosmic doormat that just lets people talk to us forever. We want to be in this nimble place where we're not afraid to interrupt the person and to say to them, you know, I don't really know what you're talking about. Or, I mean, sometimes I think we can, sometimes I find that if I'm really in that relaxed, clear place, I can really help the person see what they're not seeing that's causing them to go on and on like this. Like to interrupt them and say, sounds like you're really hurting, for example. And then that on and on and on was their way to avoid feeling that they're really hurting. But when you help them see that they're really hurting, they don't have to go on and on. They've already kind of opened that door. And now the conversation can really shift and be more, maybe more authentic. But if you're really not helping the person and you're basically allowing the person to practice an unskillful habit, it's probably more wholesome to leave than it is to just be there, be in that receptive way. And it actually can be harmful to ourselves to just stay in that environment because it may feel like we're being open and receptive but actually it's a it's a kind of it can be a kind of deadening energy i mean it'd be one thing if you could go into a deep state of samadhi you know <laughs> and maybe the person would notice or maybe they wouldn't <laughs> but you know that's generally not going to happen for us and so often what we're reinforcing is a fear of being honest and direct with the person. And actually, that's often really good medicine for people. If nobody just stood there with those people, they wouldn't keep doing that. You know, And often, of course, we're the person doing that. So I just want to acknowledge that you know, we're often that person who's going on and on. Thanks, Julian. Did you have a thought? Well, I was just... Thank you.
And you're just touching on something that is really central to the discipline of meditation, which is pleasantness, especially wholesome pleasantness. So pleasantness that doesn't agitate the mind uh, really allows. That's where we first learn this second stage of meditation. So it's actually a really good example that you gave because we all know that experience when things are really pleasant. Like another example that you wouldn't necessarily think of, but sometimes when your family, like your all your cousins or whatever, and it's harmonious. Now, that's often the case for my family. We, My parents had fought a lot when I was younger, but all of our relatives tended to get along, except for my parents. <laughs> so when we get together, it's like it was often really pleasant. And sometimes, you know, you're just talking away and engaged. But then every once in a while, you know, you know how you can just sort of shift back and you're not really participating in the conversation, but you're just kind of taking in the space. And it's like a beautiful scenery. And your mind, in a sense, can go blank. Uh, blank in the sense of there's no obligation to be tracking. And the conversations aren't really important anyway. What people are really saying is, I really like being here with you all. You know, But they may be talking about football or about weather or about this cousin or that cousin. And it kind of, you know, relates to St. Julian, too, that as lay people, a lot of times we are talking about relatively mundane things that wouldn't make the Buddhist list of appropriate topics for conversation. But if we look at the intentions, sometimes the intentions are quite wholesome. We're using the weather as a way of doing loving-kindness practice. We're really there feeling intimate with another human being. And the, the weather or whatever is just the way... To, to be close. But the point that you're making is the pleasantness of this really can teach us of how to be that in that radical, present way without needing to do anything. And if we can do it first when it's pleasant, then we'll learn we can do it in neutral experience too. It doesn't have to be really pleasant. Even just a normal scene like looking at grass or looking at the sky, which is not pretty or unpretty, you know, or just feeling the body sitting. You know, I like I do the lying down meditation at least once a day, a little savasana. And that's like a pleasant experience. It's not a great experience, but it's a pleasant experience to lie down on the carpet or on a mat. And just to become absorbed in that experience and to let the mind drop everything else. And we learn about that natural concentration where there isn't a doer doing it. It's just arising because the mind knows how to just open to this, first with pleasant, then with neutral, and eventually even with difficult experience. We can have that same radical openness or presence. And we have to leave it here. So thanks for the comments, everyone. And we'll just take a second or two to let go of the words. Appreciating the silence.
so we can make this beautiful resolve or aspiration to live our life out of this beautiful empty space of not knowing so every moment can be fresh and real and connected to what's going on born from wholesome intentions of kindness and non-aversion, non-delusion, non-greed. So may our lives be the cause for peace in the world and happiness in all directions. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. A couple of announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.